Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Corners Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, colleague, co-host, geez, co-host, colleague, and good friend. What in the hell is a co-host? Um, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? There's a lot of C's involved there, if we're being there are. honest. There are. My name is a double C, and you just there's a lot to be verbalized there, but um, I'm doing pretty well, I think. Lots of basketball. It seems like the Pacers are playing almost every game. And, and lately losing every game. So I kind of want to ask you, do you think our vibes were too good on the prior two podcasts? Like maybe we have jinxed this to a degree. I feel like our end of the year podcast, the one right before this one, we were really talking up the Pacers and feeling better about what direction they're headed in. And then, you know, Tyrese Halliburton goes down with injury and things have taken a bit of a turn. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it, it's our, it is our fault. That's a great way to put it. Um, I, I don't know. I think especially for how well they were playing and how well Tyrese was playing too, I think we were we were justified. Um I also think in some ways, like a lot of what we're gonna talk about today, like, okay, I mean, of course you're gonna miss having your best player, but also like noting Miles was out for two of the three games too. Um, so it's like I, I think we were fine. Well, that's fair. I mean, because the Hawks game, they also were missing Aaron Neesmith, and all things considered, they were very competitive in that game. Yeah. The Memphis game, a little bit different, and yesterday's second half against Milwaukee, a little bit different, but I'm sure we'll get into all those various talking points. Um, just to give people some reference about some of the numbers without Tyrese Halliburton, in addition to, if we want to go back to the Knicks game, since he didn't really play in the second half of that one either, they've lost four games in a row. The offensive rating now over these four games, 28th in the NBA. Uh, the effective field goal percentage over these four games, they are 30th in the NBA turnover rate, 27th in the NBA. And then the big ones, the half court numbers, not good. Um, 30th in the half court, according to cleaning the glass. And what's interesting is, is you kind of would have guessed, you know, going into this, not that TJ and Andrew can't bring the ball up quickly, but you know, you, you would have wondered because Tyrese so much wants to get those inbound passes after makes a lot of what he does keys, their pace, um, in addition, just what his shooting is in transition and the way that he's constantly peering over his shoulder to throw hit aheads. But the pace really hasn't changed that much. I mean, I looked at unpredictable and their average time to shoot um, just in general is 10.5 seconds. That's still third in the NBA. After a make, it's 14.3 seconds. That's fifth in the NBA. Their pace is fourth in the NBA. So transition frequency has shifted down a little bit. They're seventh, but the numbers in each of the three games, they still managed a pretty high amount of their possessions coming in transition. So in terms of that, they're still getting a large number of possessions, still getting out and running out. It's more what's happening in the half court offensively. That's, that's been the bigger issue. Yeah. I think that, I mean, that tees up into kind of our first thing. How have you felt about the point in hard experience? Okay. So I think there's a lot that can be discussed there. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, his own scoring numbers are not good right now. I mean, he's yeah. shooting over these three games, 20% from the field, 22% from three, but he's averaging seven assists. And I did feel against the Atlanta Hawks in particular because yes. I wanted to look up these numbers, so I did. 
he's made some pretty impressive passes across all three of these games. I feel, I mean, he's mm-hmm. averaged 17 potential assists. I think over these three games that would rank fifth or sixth in the entire NBA. And the thing that's kind of tantalizing about that is, is like TJ McConnell's averaging more time of possession in the last two games than he is. So he hasn't even had the ball that much. He's not averaging like as many passes per game as Tyrese normally does either. So he's capitalized on those and had some good looks. It's not necessarily his fault that like Isaiah Jackson didn't finish on several of them against the Hawks. Some other guys missed some shots, but like, I don't think his actual run of the offense, particularly at least across the first three quarters of these games has been bad. It's just that he himself hasn't made been making shots. And I do wonder for him, like how much is he starting to hit a little bit of the rookie wall himself that we kind of saw with Benedict toward the back end of December. You know, he's played way more games than he would have played for Gonzaga. He's a starter. He's going and playing a lot of physical matchups. I mean, even in the second half against Atlanta, he was matched up with a Kongu and, you know, defending at the five spot at times so that they could shift Isaiah Jackson over to DeJounte Murray, put Jalen Smith on, on DeAndre Hunter so they could be switching because they were giving up so many lobs in the first half. So, you know, he defends above his weight class a lot. He's being asked to defend against top matchups a lot. And it just kind of looked like, to me, against Milwaukee, that he was running on fumes just a little bit. And I think mm-hmm. you can kind of excuse that from him. But um, the fourth quarters have been a little bit different. But I kind of want to get your general thoughts before we dive a little bit deeper into it. Yeah, I like everything that you just mentioned, especially in that Hawks game. Um, I think, I mean, part of it is the Hawks are a little bit of a mess right now. Obviously, they end up winning that game, but that I think that it was that close speaks more to where they're at right now than than anything else. Um, but exactly like you're hitting on, like I think, yes, these three games showed a a little bit of the rookie wall, b just some of his limitations as a scorer right now. But then you saw exactly like you're hitting on. Like I thought he looked so comfortable as a just a ball handler and playmaker in general. Um, a lot of the stuff that he does, like we've talked about with his pacing and just, you know, being able to slalom into the paint, I thought that stuff really stuck out for me. And exactly like you mentioned too, like, and this is not just meant to be like shaded Ajax. I think he did some nice things in the minutes that he did have, but the finishing was certainly a problem. Um, especially like, like you mentioned that Atlanta game. Um, so I, I was really impressed on that aspect from him. I think again, like you're trying to take it, uh, shades of stuff through contact context, geez. My enunciation is so bad today. I apologize. Um, you try and take shades of things through the context. And I think through what Nemhard was asked to do over this three-game stretch, what he had to work with, um, I, I came away pretty like solidly pleased with what he was able to do. Well, noting like, yeah, I, I, the scoring, of course, has to be better. But it's a three-game sample, so you don't want to take too, too much away from it. Yeah, I think the bigger issues if we just want to focus in on the fourth quarter against Atlanta and the end of the fourth quarter against Milwaukee, I thought that he forced a few shots that he probably didn't need to take mm-hmm. when, you know, the Hawks, they weren't necessarily fully switching out, but he would get a Kongu and then he was kind of taking some of those pull-up twos, one where he ended up getting blocked, where I think you'd probably want to see them get to the next action a little bit more than what they were doing. And then also in Milwaukee, like that was kind of the big change in the second half, right? You know, they had, Brooke Lopez normally in their deep drop and, and kind of daring. I mean, that's kind of what that whole first half was about. Let's let's dare people from both sides to hit shots and everyone's just making them. You know, TJ McConnell's a... having TJ McConnell's... we should have led the pod with that. We didn't even talk about that was yeah. wild, man. Yeah, so TJ McConnell's going off for 25 points, a career best in the first half, with you know, the Bucks ducking under on some screens and and 
checking him with AJ Green, who just could not stick with him in the least. And then at the other end, you know, they assigned Miles Turner to Bobby Portis and are having him sag off so they can switch on things. And Bobby Portis is making some shots. And then Brooke Lopez is literally just staring at Miles Turner and being like, okay, go ahead and shoot. So both teams made adjustments after halftime, but the Bucks go mainly to switching after halftime. And, you know, Nemhard, I felt, you know, especially he had the one play he got a switch against Grayson Allen and he drove in and scored. And then he had another one where he drove Bobby Portis and ditched it to Jalen Smith or dished it to Jalen Smith. And Jalen kind of shook up from the corner and made a shot. But from there on, there was some issues for him against the switches where like he turned it over on a post-entry pass to miles. Then when he did get it into miles, miles kind of just like faced up and almost threw the ball against drew holiday. He tried for a step back against Brooke Lopez on the switch it felt like the offense was just getting bogged down a little bit. And then, you know, in the end, because Drew Holiday was also just cooking throughout the entire game, especially late, they ended up not closing with Nemhard and put Matherin back in. And I felt like that substitution in particular was kind of reflective of the fact that what they went to when Benedict came in was like, okay, TJ's bringing the ball up the floor and he throws the quick pitch and semi-transition to Matherin to try to get downhill. And they did that with Miles as a trailer to try to get a three ones too. And I felt like that was mainly speaking to the fact that they just didn't want to have to use a screen. Like that was a, a way to get Matherin's the best option to get downhill. And they were just like, if we put Matherin back in the game, maybe we can actually collapse this defense a little bit because we're just not executing super well against the switching defense. So, you know, Nembar didn't come out and play or didn't finish the game last night, which was somewhat notable. And also, like, do you just want to talk about the overall defense against Drew Holiday? Because that's obviously a part of what Nemhard's performance was last night, too. Uh, I mean, it wasn't good. That fourth, what did Drew score in the fourth quarter? 16? I think it was right around there. Yeah, it was It was a lot. We'll just put it that way. Yeah, I mean, they they just didn't really have a good answer for him. Um, I mean, his blend of strength and what he, I mean, he was getting stuff off the pull up too, but I also felt that their defense as a whole, kind of like you mentioned, like even I, I think they were showing it in the, in the Grizzlies game too, uh, especially in the, the third quarter into the fourth, like they were just getting killed in transition. Um, and they, they look kind of gassed. I don't know if that's your same takeaway, but that's kind of where I'm at with it. Yeah. I felt like various players looked like they were, they were running out of, uh, energy in both of those games to a degree. I mean, with Drew, what's interesting is like, if you were just to name something about Andrew Nemhard, like a quality, not necessarily even a skill. I think if you were going to define his defense, you would say he's a very physical defender. Mm -hmm. Like he uses his chest pretty well. This is what allows him to, you know, he can take some possessions against Julius Randle. We saw what he did on some possessions against LeBron, against the Lakers. I mean, that's why it's okay. It's like, okay, we will throw him on Atlanta's center for a while so that we can switch this other stuff. He sinks in really well to, you know, to chip down on bigs when he needs to get into sync rotation or box out and smash down from the perimeter. And so it seems like Drew Holiday would be an okay matchup for him at the point guard position, even though he is so strong, because that's kind of what Nemhard's strength was. But from the very beginning of that game, Drew kind of bullied him a bit. Like he got him clear underneath the basket, which was kind of an early sign to me that, you know, maybe there's some fatigue going on here because he wasn't really holding up super well against that. There was a couple times where they needed to show doubles and then, you know, in the second half, the Pacers went to zone a lot. They played quite a bit of two, three, and that, that worked 
early in the second half where they forced some turnovers. And then by the fourth quarter, it felt like the Bucks had really figured it out. They started like using Connaughton and he'd go behind the the top guys at the line and flash into the high post. And then, you know, Jordan Noir or whoever would cut from the corner. And then that was an easy score. They'd overload it with three guys and put somebody in the high post. And then it was just a numbers advantage for them. So they were really dicing it up with cuts and with ball movement there at the start of the fourth. So the Pacers basically were like, okay, now we're going to switch. And they had used Miles mainly, like I said before, on Bobby Portis to try to keep him low. So now, you know, they're using Portis as the screener. They're using Buddy's guy as the screener. And then Drew just started torching every switch. Like he hit the step back against Jalen Smith on a switch. He hit two or three shots against Miles on a switch. He They had to come double once they put Buddy out there. So I guess for me, I felt like if I was going to criticize anything, which this is tough for me to say, given that the Pacers did try a lot of different looks, I thought maybe they needed to go to switch to Blitz or to trapping Drew a little bit sooner than what they did. They didn't really Mm -hmm. start looking to that until he got Buddy on an island with like two minutes to go, and then they sent a double. Like they sent a few doubles too after Nemhard came out, and it's like, you know, he's cooking. Like Miles isn't staying with him on the perimeter, so send the extra guy. And if if, if Nemhard can't stay in front of him going around the screen, which he was struggling to do, then – I guess like even with the way the Bucks were shooting the ball, I would have rathered if somebody else, if they, if they forced somebody else to beat them, like if Grayson Allen and George Hill and Wesley Matthews and people shoot you down from three, I guess they do. Um, which is, it's tough for me to say. Cause I know in the past I've been like, you know, this team's really relying on trapping, but also there's a reason why they're relying on trapping. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe go to that a little bit sooner. And even like you said, like I was a little bit surprised in the Memphis game as well, that they waited as long as they did to go to their normal like half court trapping and pressure against Memphis's transition and um against Jaw in general. Cause like Jaw didn't it poor Jalen. Yeah, Jaw wasn't Jaw wasn't super like efficient from the field in that game, but he was getting into the paint whenever he wanted to. Yeah. So I was a little bit surprised that they didn't go with trapping until like late in the third quarter of that game either. But I guess that's that's where my little bit of criticisms would go. I mean, because True, like even in the Knicks game after halftime, like that was in part because Miles wasn't available, but Brunson had like 15 points in the first quarter. Different defensive scheme again. Like they were trying to ice Brunson really hard right, force him down to the corners, and then they were kind of trapping him there. And like, you know, he split between Nemhard and Jalen, like stuff that probably wouldn't have happened if you could have had Miles out there, but obviously he was a late scratch. So then after halftime, they just completely like just run wild. That, that was one of the most wild second halves of basketball I think I've ever watched, but you know, they're trapping everything, trapping every bully drive, blitzing Brunson, blitzing RJ Barrett, doubling Julius Randall in the post and just causing a lot of chaos there. And, you know, Brunson gives up quite a bit of size. So it's a little bit easier to do that and make it harder for him to pass. And I felt like Tibbs was pretty late adjusting to take Mitchell Robinson off the floor as well. But anyways, like if we're just looking at Nemhard in particular, you know, defensively, he did have some issues against Drew, ended up not playing at the end of the game. But I think overall, like from a playmaking standpoint, I think there's still been some really good stuff there, even if the numbers don't necessarily show it. Mm-hmm. And I do want to say one other thing offensively, too, is that I looked and even though he's playing at the point, most of his shots in these three games have been catch and shoot threes, more so even than when he plays with Tyrese. I think that the frequency on that is like 40 or 45% of his shots these three games have been catch and shoot three pointers which have mostly been open and usually those numbers like 31% of his shots so to a certain degree it's just that he's not making open catch and shoot threes um which you know has I think has surprised both of us a little bit how well he has shot the ball 
up until this point, I mean, we talked about that on the last podcast, how well he'd been shooting the three and, and doing that in an off guard role. So that's just kind of dried up a little bit for him over these three games. But I guess overall, my take is I think he's played better than what the numbers suggest. And I also think that based on what some of we've seen defensively, that it might just be a case of him finally, you know, running out of gas just a little bit. So I guess that's my overall arcing take on point Nemhard. Yeah. No, I, I I concur. And actually, something I want to go off of with that, too, I don't know if you were wanting to get into this as well, but um, with Benedict, where are you at with the three-point shooting right now? Because I'm trying to pull up the stats. I mean, even in this three-game stretch, he's not shot well, but he's also not shooting a lot. And if I remember correctly, it's been – because, I'm again, I'm trying to pull up the numbers right. I should have had the numbers ready. But if I remember correctly, he's below about three three point three three point attempts per game since – the 25th of December. Um, so Christmas, yeah, right now over Christmas, the last but... three, I just pulled it up. So he's shooting 28% on 2.3 attempts over the last three. It feels like he has, and th- this is not me trying to say that he's been bad, but it's more like, it feels like he's really just said, okay, I don't have my shot going. So I'm going to get to the rim and get fouled or at least try and try and do that. And it's, I mean, he's getting to the free throw line a ton of late. And it's not just because of like one or two big games and getting the line, like, it's still been very consistent. So how I just was wondering how you felt about that process in general, because I haven't asked you about that yet. Right. So I actually wrote about that at the end of the piece that I wrote about his jab step. Um, I think in general, his first inclination is to catch and drive. I think that's just like, you know, that's his gene. That's what he's going to do. And I think teams have adjusted. Some teams have adjusted to that a little bit where you're going to see mm-hmm. them give a little bit of a shorter closeout. And then, you know, maybe they don't bite on that first jab where he likes to jab and then go to his left which is okay because he actually has counters to that. I love his rocker step. I like his shimmy jab. All that stuff helps him with what his handle is. But I do think there are times where he needs to be um, quicker to read how close the defense is playing him and be willing to shoot because teams will continue to adjust to that if if they don't. Where like there are easier catch-and-shoot threes and then he doesn't take it. Maybe he drives into a crowd. Um, one particular example of that I felt – if we do want to talk a little bit about the Memphis game, because this sure. goes around with what you brought up, um, Zaire really took Buddy out of that game. That was the first game in 55 games that Buddy Heald has not made a three-pointer, and he only attempted three, which was tied for his fewest of the season. And, like, obviously, you know, he plays very well off of Tyrese. There's a reason why they're the number one assist combo in the NBA. They, they play on a wavelength pretty well together. But the Pacers were still playing in transition in that game had a pretty decent frequency and he wasn't getting really looks there, but they were top locking him, which for people who don't know, means that you're playing in between the ball and buddy, like instead of playing behind him and trailing him around a stagger, you're playing on top and forcing him to reject that. So the Pacers went to and tried several different things. People can look on my Twitter if they want to see some of the adjustments that they tried. And one of them that they did is they just had buddy run up to Matherin and just screen that guy. So if you're playing on top of him, and you run to set, you know, a ghost screen or a ball screen, it effectively acts as a double screen because you're sandwiching your guy between Benedict's guy. So that was going to let Benedict get downhill. And I think Aaron Neesmith was in the ball side corner and Jaron Jackson comes all the way off of him to collapse on Benedict. And, you know, he could make a pass to to Jalen and he doesn't even like, or to 
to Aaron, my bad. He doesn't even see him. Like, and it's so, so some of it goes to the shot selection and some of it goes to, okay, when you catch the ball in that situation, if you're open, go ahead and shoot it rather than driving into the crowd. Cause like you said, like we know how good he is at like being a sunflower that bends to the sun against contact. He's pretty good at drawing contact, but I do think that teams will continue to adjust if they know that those are his first tendencies. And that if you crowd him a lot of times, especially if you're crowding him from the perimeter on a dig down, he doesn't make those reads very well right now. He's not going to he's not going to keep a dig down at bay with his handle or necessarily with a pass. So there is incentive for teams to do that. Yeah. Um yeah, no, I think I I don't really have a ton to add to that. I appreciate that context. I feel like the, I just want to add to. I know that I a lot of times they'll say something I'll be like, "Yeah, you know, that's interesting. I agree." You put you paint things in a, in a, with a detail that I just uh I admire a lot. So, very random thing, but just want to say that. Um, well, thank you. And I will say that, like, I mean, I say I agree with you sometimes as well. Like, I just think that, you know, when we rewatch these games, both of us see basketball through a somewhat similar lens. Like, yeah. I apologize if we don't always disagree about stuff, if people don't like listening to that, but it's just what it is. Uh, um, I'll get my Skip Bayless on hat uh, eventually. Don't worry. Um, just kidding. I hate myself for saying that automatically, but uh, continue. Here's a question. Yeah. If we're going to stick on Mathern a bit um, in the Atlanta game, he found buddy in transition a few times, which was nice to see. And then yesterday against the bucks, I don't think he actually made, he made three shots. And I think that the last one that he made was with like five minutes to go in the first quarter. So mm-hmm. he didn't make another field goal the rest of the game, though he did get to the free throw line some, but something that's interesting for me with him that I also brought up in that article is that when he goes from a live dribble to making a pass, I don't know if it's his hand strength or like what his hands measured at the combine. His but ball velocity is insane. He really struggles though, to me, to be able to pick up the ball mm. and and get oomph under it to make a pass. Like you'll see that sometimes in the half court. There was two or three times in transition against the Bucks. He had some like that game more than maybe any other this season. He had like a lot of handling issues. I felt. Like there was like three or four times where he either bobbled it, like, and not even necessarily because it was like deflected. Um, that just showed up a little bit more to me. But I, I think it's interesting that like to go, like I said, when he has to go in motion, particularly sometimes in Sammy transition to to pick the ball up with one. And maybe it's because I'm so used to watching Tyrese and Nemhard, because Nemhard's like lefty whip pass is really something. How strong his hand is with that, but um, that was that. Just some of the handling issues I felt really showed up against Milwaukee, but um, that's just a side point. Um, they yeah. didn't get a lot of offense from a lot of people. I don't think that Chris Duarte <laughs> even attempted a shot in the second half of that game. Yeah, the I offense mean, was Miles Turner above the break three or sprinting down the court in transition, and that was kind of it yesterday. Yes, yeah, shout out to Miles though. I mean, that was fun to watch. But yeah, that was a. Uh... I actually do want to talk about Miles, if you don't mind. Yeah, let's do it. Um, let's just talk about the entirety, you know, him not being available for two games and then coming back fresh off the back spasms and scoring 30 against the Milwaukee Bucks. And what's kind of interesting about that is, like, I do think a piece of his improvement this season is the fact that he plays with Tyrese Halliburton because, like, let's be honest, I think that pretty much every roller or screener would be better playing with Tyrese Halliburton than without him. But he scored 30 points without Tyrese Halliburton yesterday. So... Um, just kind of want to get your thoughts on Miles's performance against the Milwaukee Bucks first game back after sitting out too. Uh, I was pretty impressed with him, honestly. Like, I think there was, uh, on one hand, there was, maybe I'm too ingrained in NBA Twitter sometimes, but I think there was too much of like, how can Brooke Lopez be DPOY with this? That had nothing to do with Brooke Lopez as far as I'm concerned. Like, like you mentioned, I think they were pretty content just saying, all right, Miles, shoot the ball. 
Um, and he shot it well to his credit, but I felt like there was just no hesitancy from him yesterday. I thought he, I was other than the only time that I think I got a little bit bummed out watching that game from him is that drew like stonewalled him in the post a couple of times. And then they just stopped looking for him when he had any kind of mismatch on the, po- in the post, like late in the game in the fourth, um, when Miles he had George had, Hill. Yeah, he had George Hill sealed. Yeah. And I believe it was Nemhard looked right at him and then moved the ball to the to the wing instead. Um, and I think it was like pretty clear that he could have gotten the ball too. So I thought that was interesting. I'm not trying to say that there was anything there, sure. but like, yeah. No, I think out. he might have I think he might have uh had the yips a little bit from two possessions ago when he had turned it over trying to throw it in there. So maybe he was like worried he was going to turn it over again. But yeah, I definitely noticed that as well. Miles did do a pretty good job of, of getting George Hill in position there and then he didn't touch it. But yeah, I mean, I think the first half, like I said, was kind of like a massive display of, hey, we both these teams have people that we're just not going to guard. And if you start to beat us, then, you know, I guess we do. But I will say in the second half, there was probably two things that, we don't often see from him a lot that we did see where he posted Bobby Portis and I believe Matherin was the nearest player to him. And he waved Matherin like, get out, get out because Matherin was being defended by Drew and he didn't want Drew to be able to dig down as, as the closest person off the post entry passer. So Ben and buddy swapped spots so that, you know, if buddy's guy then went and doubled, then buddy would be open to shoot for one. But it was nice to see Miles display that type of process. And then once he cleared Drew out as the dig down defender, he actually scored on that post up against Bobby Portis. So um, I've been impressed. That's why I wanted to write in the thing that I wrote over the weekend about uh, players who have made strides this year that I think that the way I would describe Miles is like he's not a dominant back to the basket player. Nobody's going to describe him that way. But when compared to himself, I think that he's done a good job of both calming down and being more aggressive. He's actually taking time to feel where guys are that, mm-hmm. you know, him directing Benedict and buddy, there, showing, you know, a good court mapping around what he's doing in addition to what he's doing um, in the post himself and those static posts up situations. So that was good. And then I also thought that there was one play where when the Bucks started switching, he actually used a DHO keeper and went to the rim, which I think I can probably count like, I don't know, five times in his career when I've watched him yeah. do that. So to see him do that and recognize like, hey, Milwaukee's switching. This is an opportunity for me to turn the ball down here, downhill here. That was good as well. I did find it a little bit curious that they ended up subbing him out and finished like the last almost two minutes with Jalen at the five. It's like, I don't know if they felt better about Jalen switching once they started switching or his ability to rotate out of the traps, or maybe if that was just like, Hey, this is miles. first game back due to back spasms. And we don't want to play like maybe he was on some type of minutes limit, but I did think it was interesting that Andrew and miles didn't finish the game and they finished instead mm-hmm. with Mathern and, and Jalen. But um, miles had some struggles, obviously with drew torching him on several switches there in the fourth quarter, but you know, I don't necessarily see Miles as like a switch out big. And a lot of times they aren't doing that with him this season, quite frankly. I mean, that's why he was defending Bobby Portis, because if you're going to play four guards, you got to keep Miles at the rim. And if you switch him out against the guard, then you're having to protect the rim with like, you know, all due respect to Andrew Nemhard and some of his vertical contests. But then you're relying on like Matherin or Nemhard or, you know, Buddy Heald or somebody to be your backline weak side rim protector. So, yeah, um, we don't, uh, that's why we don't see Miles switch out to the ball that much this season. That's where he's getting assigned to more, you know, lower usage wings. So he's not in screening action because they just have to do that with the four guard lineups. Definitely. Um, can I but just sorry. say too? Yeah, good, no, you're good. W- just because you mentioned Bobby Portis. This is a random side. 
I fewer things give me chills this season, quite like hearing the Milwaukee crowd chant <laughs> yes. Bobby Portis when he's at the line. It is amazing, like absolutely amazing. It's one of my Special favorite stuff. things in basketball right now. Like I, I have to write something about it because it's just it's great. Um, I absolutely adore it. But yeah, um, going off that as well. I mean, do you want to talk about Jalen Smith or do you want to stay on Miles? Because I know we have. I feel like the other thing we want to talk about him is probably a little bit later in the pod. Um, either way that you want to go, if you have thoughts about Jalen, I don't have a lot of thoughts about Jalen unless we want to talk about just the front court rotation. Well, yeah, let's just talk general. about front court because I guess that was more of a transition. Okay, to talk about front court. Um. Yeah, so Ajax played some minutes. He had a seven-block game, which is pretty wild. Uh, Jalen Smith got uh, – I, I would like to just forget the Memphis game for his sake. Um, that's That was one of the best in-game dunks I've seen in a long time. Or I should just say poster because there have been some great in-game dunks. But uh, It was hard to pay attention to anything that happened after that, to be honest. Yeah, I think that happened. I just kind of had like the um, – the like like the flashbacks like kind of just whirring through my head you know seeing the raptors game from two years ago when they were down by what like 50 at one point mm, um yes so i was just kind special of, that's, stuff yeah what a fun time love that game remember when they just kept driving malcolm brogdon over and over and over again i tried to forget yeah sorry um but yeah i mean what what takeaways do you have from uh from from the two game stretch without miles for what that means for the bigs. Right. So, I mean, if I think we just look at the Hawks game, like obviously he had some breathtaking blocks. There was times where it looked like Ijax was like rising up as like a literal fly swatter. He was so ferocious with some of the ones that he rotated over for. They, the Pacers had to try a lot defensively in that game. If you watch it back and look at what adjustments they made after the second half, I feel like a lot of times with Isaiah Jackson, everything he does defensively is loud. It's either a really wow moment where he's racking up all those different blocks or it's a really loud mistake. So they were clearly struggling pretty heavily to defend the lob passes and defend Trey in the pick and roll with Ijax and drop. They did use him a couple times to hedge on Spain pick and rolls, which was strangely effective. That worked pretty decently for them, kind of stepping out and trapping Trey and then having Ijax get back in position. They didn't stick with that. So if you look after halftime, they assigned him to DeJounte Murray and let him sag off, which is overall the way that I think that they should be using him. Whoever's going to be the least frequent screener and is the least threatening shooter, they assigned him to him. And then they either had Chris or Nemhard during those minutes defending a Kongu so that they could switch the ball screens and, and try to contain their pick and roll attack a little bit more. But the fact that the Pacers aren't necessarily starting all of their games doing that with Ajax kind of tells you where they're at with Ijax's drop coverage, that that's where they ended up going with it. And then late, they you know they did eventually flip him back to the big and then we're having him do a little bit more switching, which I also thought was more effective than what they were doing in the first half. But point being, it was a very mixed bag for him defensively. They had to try a lot of different stuff. And then similarly against Memphis, plus there was just times when he was defending at the five spot one-on-one against the Hawks where he just got completely dislodged again. Like I found that like over the summer and and in his defense, he wasn't like just talking about the weight that he had put on independently. Like he was getting asked a lot of questions about it, but like it felt like he really thought he was going to be able to withstand a bump in the post or around the basket and still be able to hold his ground more while maintaining the fact that he didn't add so much weight that he would lose mobility. I haven't really noticed him being able to hold up a lot around you know, more physical imposing frames the way that was being framed 
during preseason, at least. I think it's still somewhat of an issue with his slender frame being able to hold up in some of those situations. So, you know, the Memphis game was kind of, you know, a tidal wave overall. But then, you know, he did have some good moments. And then we go back to the Bucks game and he played, I believe, one minute. So we're kind of back to where we were before on our prior podcast, where it's kind of like, you know, what is the long-term outlook here? Because Miles returns to the lineup. Jalen Smith is the backup big. Ijax gets a little bit of look in the first half. You know, maybe he's just like a first-half player, where if they throw him out there for a little bit as like a third big and see how he does, and if he does well, reward him in the second half. And that was kind of for a while what would happen with TJ Leaf under Nate McMillan. Like he'd get like a five minute burst in the first half. And then if he played well, he might see time in the second half, but like, it just, it just makes it hard to figure out like other than an emergency big, when other guys are out, what exactly his role is going to be. Yeah. I think it's, it's really interesting with IJAX because exactly like you're mentioning, I think, you know, you see some of the, the flashes and intrigue, but like exactly like you hit on um, so much of it feels like, uh, Flash in the pan is unfair. That's not the right way to put it, but like it's his mistakes are loud and, and what he does well is loud. Um, when he does have the blocks, like the seven block game, like that, that stands out. But then there are also still the, I mean, the pick and roll defense isn't all that much better. And this is um, not that it's like solely on IJAX, but I think even in the Memphis game, like at, even when they played him a little bit close to the screen or, or they played him in a shorter drop, he wasn't really doing a lot in terms of giving, um, giving like any kind of contest, like, like miles. I mean, even we've seen him do it against Memphis, not that he fixes everything, but like he will do stuff with like hand play and trying to, you know, jab out and force ball handlers to think twice about driving in as far. And again, not that's fully stopping job, but just for example, like there's, there's a lot of stuff, but then, you know, kind of what makes it difficult as a whole is, he has that game where he plays as much as he does. And then he goes to what playing one minute in the game against the Bucs. Um, and then it just kind of speaks to at large, what his role is and how he's supposed to develop without some of those in-game reps. And um, yeah. I think my favorite IJAX play from this stretch of games was against the Hawks when he managed to throw like a cross court pass with one hand, like practically through a pinhole to find a shooter on the other side of the floor when Chris Duarte was right in front of him and the corner next to him, like wide open, like all he had to do was just throw it right to Chris. And instead he turned over his shoulder. And like I said, managed to throw it through the tightest space between two defenders. And I like, I think that kind of speaks to IJAX sometimes where like some of the finishing stuff. And I know we've talked about this before, but like he will complicate finishes so much. Like he'll go into a spin move. Like when all he needs to do is just like use a quick drop to put the ball in the basket and he'll like spin around into the defense to get back to his left and other stuff. That's like really interesting to me. But at the same time, it's like you watch him make that pass. And I still feel like there is some passing flashes for him at times, Mm -hmm. even though he doesn't necessarily get put in those positions all the time. But I mean, yeah, I mean, that's why the whole thing's complicated. Obviously people know that I think Jake Fisher at Yahoo put out there that there's a chance that Goga could be moved at the deadline. And I did find the little tidbit in there that Goga has kind of turned down G League assignments to be kind of interesting in that. Um, yeah, I, I I meant to yeah, say that. I, I raised an eyebrow at that. Um, not because I'm questioning Jake, just that interesting from Goga a little bit. Yeah, I'll put it that way. Um, 
that, you know, thinning out this center rotation one way or another, I think is going to be pretty important. And, you know, maybe they haven't done that yet because they don't fully know what's going to be going on with miles and the extension and whatever else might happen at the trade deadline. But at a certain point in time, they need to not have five centers on the roster. I, I, I think I stand pretty firmly on that overall position, but, um, is there any other individual players that you wanted to talk about from any of these three games or trends that you noticed? Well, I think we, we have to talk about Chris, right? Cause he had the, Oh nothing. yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so he has the one game. Obviously, I should just say the fourth quarter against the Grizzlies. I mean, he really, he really popped. He really flashed. He looked comfortable. How did you feel about it, though? And I don't. I did not. Sorry, I did not mean to frame that as like a gotcha. Like, oh, he didn't actually play that well. But what did you think about his minutes in that fourth quarter against Memphis? Yeah, I mean, some of it's happening in garbage time. Like, obviously, yeah. that game was way out of hand. Um, to a certain extent, it was just good to see him put the ball in the hole, to be honest. I mean, with, with the degree of slump that he had, I don't know if I would dig that deeply into it, period, because he just needed to see shots go in. I do think that that game might have been the most I've ever seen him make shots off of motion, which was good to see. Um, he did move up from the corner and make one. He made one as a back screen out of Spain. And then the one that I really liked based on our prior conversation about him on the on the last podcast is they actually ran, like, they'll set a down screen for him at the block, which that's called zipper. He comes off of that, gets the ball from the point guard, flips it back to the point guard, and then they had him drift around a flare screen while at the same time the other shooter came off of a pin down. So that's called mover blocker. And that's what I was talking about on the prior podcast that might be good to get him moving at the same time as another shooter so that both he and Ben or he and Buddy are both involved at the same time. And, you know, he had Jake LaRavia guarding him, which was a good matchup for him, to be quite honest, like Mm -hmm. him going around screens, him doing other stuff. We saw on that particular play that I'm referencing, Jake tried to shoot the gap under the flare screen. That made it really easy for Chris to stop behind it and shoot. By comparison, they ran that exact same play for Buddy to try to get him loose against Zaire's top locking, and Zaire chased him through it, and it ended up being a turnover. So that was a good matchup to get Chris going. Um, I liked what we saw from him. It was unfortunate when he jammed his fingers, and then we saw him you know, smack that chair over and all. Fortunately, he was able to come back out and keep playing and, and come out against the Bucks and playing. Um, I don't know how much all of it was sustainable. Obviously, he was 2 of 5 against the Bucks. I don't think he even took a shot in the second half. But just to the degree that he was struggling, and like I don't – I hesitate to use this word, but it was getting borderline cringy for a few games there. So to see him actually get back on the board and just have some threes – actually be made on the board after having like four out of five games where he didn't score, I think was important for him. Yeah, no, I agree. Totally. Uh, to, to see exactly like you mentioned, putting the ball in the basket was, was just, I mean, that was, that was good to see because it needed to happen at some point. I think the the biggest thing for me was just that he looked comfortable, like, cause he just hasn't looked comfortable, frankly, pretty yeah. much the entire season. So to have that was, um, was a win, but I think that's really my only takeaway from it. Yeah, I mean, you could tell that the coaching staff and the team was trying or was aware of what a slump was and was trying to get him cracked out of it. Because, like I said, they gave they put that play back into action to try to get him free that I referenced. And then in the Hawks game, they opened the first half with a play for him that was pretty creative where they had, you know, Buddy's supposed to come off a stagger and he twirled around the first screen. So curled the first screen and then immediately came back out of it and set a back screen 
on the the second guy of the stagger so that Chris could back cut so that when then Andrew came around, uh, it was Chris crashing to the basket. It didn't come off, but you could tell by the design of it that they were aware that, hey, if we can get Chris an easy basket just cutting toward the rim and he can see that he's made a shot, maybe that will change the tide for him. So um, credit to the coaching staff, credit to his teammates that they tried to get him some more shots to get him back on on track a little bit, even though it didn't necessarily carry over into the next game completely. Um, It doesn't really change overall for his, what his circumstances are. Like if he could be more effective and just be making open shots, that, that's good, especially if they really believe in, you know, operation six, five here and they want to keep playing eight guards, but you know, it's kind of like the same thing with Isaiah Jackson. It was good to see both sophomores have good games or good games by comparison to how they had been playing of late, but it doesn't necessarily change their circumstances. I mean, Ajax is still going to be behind Miles and Jalen in the rotation for the time being, unless something radical changes. And in Chris's case, it's like we keep saying, like, Buddy and Benedict are still there. So as long as that happens, as well as what Andrew's been able to contribute aside from his defensive performance against Drew yesterday, like I just don't see a lot of upward mobility for either one of them with the current way that the roster's constructed. Yeah, I agree. Which is probably why, like, I mean, we didn't talk about it completely on the last podcast, but I believe that Jake also referenced in there that for the first time, the Pacers have been open to the idea of moving Chris. Whereas, you know, you and I, I will say that you and I have been talking about this since the trade deadline last year, that, you know, because of, that he is older for a rookie. And then especially after they drafted Benedict and when they didn't trade buddy over the summer, that it might've been worth it for them to consider moving Chris, because I think last year with the way that he had played as a rookie and the fact that, you know, maybe some contenders want might've wanted a shooter on a rookie scale deal, you know, even in just a bench role that his value might've been really good for the Pacers. And it sounds like now they're, they're more open to looking at it, but we'll see what happens once the trade deadline actually gets here. Yeah. Um, well, I guess, I mean, that can transition to talking about it. With where the Pacers are at now, they've dropped their last four. Tyrese feasibly will not be back, at least in theory, what we uh, saying have been led to believe is, again, wrong way to put it. But like what was initially reported, he won't be back till around the 26th. That's you know two weeks from, from initial um, injury report. They have five games between now and then. They've dropped these last four. They are currently in ninth place now. I mean, eighth place now um, have fallen back behind the heat uh, and are only slightly a half game above Atlanta um, and not much farther ahead of Chicago and Toronto, who are both 20 and 24 in the 10 and 11 spot. Does this change your outlook on what the what what the team should do at the trade deadline? I mean, it's tough to say because we never know what deals are out there. I mean, I guess you're not – I mean, I don't think you and I probably would have been in support of them anyways trying to make, like, a short-term term move to make themselves just, like, you know, incrementally more competitive in a play-in game. Like, I don't really think that's the move that I'm looking for them in general. I think – and I don't want to speak for you, and I'll certainly listen to what your answer to this question is. But like I said on the last podcast, I just want them to continue to think big, meaning – be willing to make the bigger swing that fits with your core. That's going to give you a higher potential ceiling in the long term, And that, that might apply to now as well. Like it might, you know, I'm, I'm just throwing a name out there. I'm not saying the Pacers should do this. I don't want people coming at me, but if you're willing to give up, you know, multiple draft picks and, and I don't even think the Raptors are going to be willing to move him right now, but to go after somebody like OG on that 
fits your timeline and fits pretty heavily exactly what type of player they're missing. Like that's one thing versus going after a smaller move. That's like, Hey, that's a veteran guy who, you know, we might be able to get out of the playing tournament with that guy, but we're not, you know, you, I don't want it to see them give up draft capital or something for that type of move. And I think that Tyrese being out, especially if they continue to lose right now would probably maybe dissuade them from doing a lot a little bit, especially if, you know, they play Chicago in the next five games, Chicago, I think is two and a half games back. That would shave a full game off of that lead potentially. Um, and we don't know how the Pacers will continue to play once Tyrese gets in there. I did feel better about where they were overall, but like, whether it's what they do in the draft or what they do with draft picks or what, you know, free agency, free agents they pursue over the summer. I just want the continued outlook for the team to be what gives us the highest possible ceiling, not necessarily, you know, some of the stuff that we've seen in the past where they're thinking, you know, and shorter increments of what could make us, you know, the tough out type language again. But w- what are your thoughts? Sorry, I just had to laugh because uh, did you by chance listen to Tyrese's appearance on the Woj pod? I, I indeed did. Yes. Did you? Do you hear him say that they're tough out every night? <laughs> I didn't pay close attention to that, but <laughs> he said that, and I, uh, it, yeah, I, I knew exactly what he meant, so I didn't want to like take it, you know, obviously out of context or anything, because he just meant that they're a better team this year. But that it did make me chuckle greatly. I really, I mean, if we do want to talk about that a little bit, I did like the, or I did enjoy the end of the podcast very much, where you know Woj kind of asked him about. I won't say the limitations, but like playing in a small market team and being able to get free agents to Indiana and that Tyrese was like, you know, I'm not going to be accepting of that. Basically that like the way, like we're going to sell ourselves is by the type of basketball we play. And the fact that if you come here, like I'm going to get you the ball. And it sounded like he's not just going to be like willing to, I don't want to say use that as an excuse, but that like, he feels confident in his ability. It sounded to me to be able to sit with free agents and be like, come play here. And it sounded like it was reported, like, I don't want to, I don't remember the story exactly, but I think Jake wrote a story about Tyrese pretty early in the season talking, you know, about moving from Sacramento to here and that he was somewhat involved in meeting with DeAndre Ayton over the summer. So that was kind of interesting to me. And it sounded like that was something that Tyrese was kind of looking forward to. Like, I don't know how, how you took it, but it sounded like he kind of wanted to have the option to be able to sit and be able to potentially lure free agents here. But what was your general take from that? Cause I never actually talked to you about it. Uh, no, I thought that was cool. Like I enjoyed him on the pod. Um, I exactly like you're hanging on to. I Jesus, dude. Like I get that it hasn't even been a year yet, but like how many times has dude been asked about Sacramento? No, that, that I tweeted that that day. Like it's t- There's so many things to ask him. It's time to stop asking him questions about the trade. And well, and that's kind of the difference. Like nobody really does talk to Domas about that. Like, does anybody ever talk to him about leaving Indiana and what that was like for him? Like, I don't think that we really do. And quite frankly, I don't really need to, I don't think that you need to, like, they're both on different teams that are both thriving for their different teams. Like, I don't know why we need to keep rehashing that story over and over and over again. We have to continue. Boo Sacramento. Yeah. It's annoying to me. Um, Yeah. Uh, where was I going from there? Yeah, no, I didn't have anything like wild to take away from that. I think that he's kind of saying presented makes it sound like it's fake, but I think it's obviously very real from him, but like, he's just brought that genuine nature the entire time. And I think that almost to another degree, like he has that extra level of confidence this year, not that he wasn't confident last year, but I think exactly like you hit on, he's like, yeah, I could, I I'm comfortable. Like, I think that I could 
you know, really talk to people and, and get them interested in coming here. And um, obviously that's the kind of thing that I think you need to see play out before I'm, you know, fully on board, but yeah, I, I think that that was a good takeaway. Yeah, I did find the quote. So Jake had in this article from the beginning of the season talking about Tyrese's, you know, Indiana's franchise player quote, his influence in Indiana has stretched well beyond those painted lines. The franchise values his mind for the passing lanes that processes and the person it has shaped. In July, Halliburton joined the Pacers contingent that met with Sun Center DeAndre and in free agency. So yeah, he was involved cool. in that to a certain degree. So um I just I just appreciate that he wasn't willing to just be like and I'm not saying that you should be unrealistic and think that like top tier guys necessarily are going to be willing to do that, but that like, he wasn't just going to accept automatically that they won't either. Yeah. Um, so that was just a tiny takeaway that I had, but. No, I dig that. Um, what else do you want to get into here? Do you, th- do we have anything else to get into? I don't think we really do. I mean, I think that we've covered these three games pretty well. We'll see what happens. I mean, I think moving forward when they play the thunder tomorrow night, I'll be interested to see, if they're quicker to go to like switch to blitz or some of the trapping that we've seen throughout the season against Shea than what they ended up being last night against Drew Holiday, given that they're going to obviously be against another big dynamic guard. Not that they play completely similarly. Their play styles are very different, but um, that'll be something to watch. And then obviously when they go out on the two game West coast road trip, um, they'll also have Jamal Murray in Denver, assuming he's playing in that particular game, but. Awesome. Um, yeah, I am looking forward to that as well because exactly like mentioned, let me pull up the schedule again because it uh it is not necessarily just a cakewalk. Um, they play OKC, who has been really solid lately and just uber competitive. Their defense, especially without Tyrese, ooh, interested to see how that looks. They play Denver, they play Phoenix, who Phoenix is kind of reeling, so that's not terrible. Then they play Chicago, they play Orlando, and we've seen them have problems with Orlando. Um, and then theoretically he should be back uh, by the time the Memphis, not Memphis, the, the Milwaukee game happens. And then they play Memphis right after that to close out January. So um, exciting couple weeks coming up uh, to say the least before the trade deadline. For sure. Lots of, lots of storylines to continue to monitor and we'll see. I know that you and I talked about maybe potentially doing trade pods, but then none of those rumors really heated up. So We'll see what happens. Hopefully, you know, either something wild happens out of nowhere or something. I, per- I personally will be fine if I don't do a trade pod until the trade deadline is over. And then we can just talk about whatever trades did or did not happen. <laughs> yeah. See, all right. That I am. Uh, I'm on board with that. That That is that is the that this is the way I don't know if you've seen the Mandalorian. Actually, if I remember correctly, you don't you've never seen Star Wars, right? There's a long list of things I haven't seen, Mark. And yes, that's that's among them. Yeah, I I figured. Uh, I know that we talked about that one before because I as as I'm apt to, I make analogies, and I think that man, I feel like you get like maybe less than nine than than like ten percent of my analogies. So like, it's, it's probably true. It's probably it, true. There's it just makes a, for there's a lot of pop culture things that I haven't seen. Like the longer that we do this podcast, I think more and more people are going to find out exactly how not cool and hip to the scene that I am. I'm it's not saying I'm poor to the scene. I've just I, all my stuff is like more like Star Wars is like I mean that's big, but like I, I pull some more minute things, so it makes sense. Um, do you have anything cool and exciting going on in your life? Anything Outshine related? I saw that you got a very cool email about Outshine, so I wanted to ask you about that. Oh, that was actually like shout out 
that was a person sending us uh, an email about the podcast who threw that on at the end. So shout out to that person. I don't want to reveal who they are in case they don't want people knowing that they sent the email. But yes, I enjoyed that line very much. Um, I will say the countdown is on because in addition to the trade deadline, it is almost it is less than a month until my birthday, Mark. And I'm trying Ooh. to decide. I'm trying to decide what I want to do popsicle related for my birthday. I have a couple different plans in the works. I don't know if you've seen some of my tweets, but once I've tried all the outshine flavors and they weren't like, you know, coming and knocking at my door to make me an influencer or to sponsor our podcast, my sister for Thanksgiving made me the cranberry lime pot popsicle that we had talked about on the pod. And it was, it was very good. So then we kind of got in a groove where I was coming up. Like that's kind of our relationship where I'm kind of like a thinker like I come up with ideas and she's like a tremendous doer. Like she's the type of person that I'm pretty sure you could ask her to teach herself how to do anything. And within a week, she'd be able to do it. So she's been bringing all my popsicle ideas to life. So the next one we made was Kiwi Honeydew. That one was pretty impressive as well. And then on Christmas Eve, she made a wassail popsicle, which that was the best popsicle I've ever had in my life. I'm just putting it out. What there. is a wassail popsicle? So wassail is a hot drink. So in this case, like she was a little bit hesitant. We were texting back and forth about it. And I was like, Christmas popsicle idea, wassail. And she's like, I don't know if that's going to turn out. And I was like, I, I believe in it. And so she did. It was apple, pineapple, orange, nutmeg, or not nutmeg, sorry, cinnamon, brown sugar, and cloves. And before she brought it down and it was frozen. And while we were waiting to eat it, I'm like, I'm getting a little bit nervous about how some of the, the seasoning is going to play in this popsicle. And then I, it was the best popsicle I've ever had. So she and I have been talking a little bit because our birthdays are actually only a day apart, but we're four years different in age. Mm -hmm. So we were talking about what we wanted to do about potentially making another craft popsicle. And then you also know from our prior podcast that I've had on my list all year, that I want to go to the various nicey treat locations in Indianapolis. And I still just have not gone out to do that yet, mostly because my freezer is always full of outshine pops, but I'm thinking about making, taking my pals for a trip to nicey treat. Cause like, fortunately for me, my birthday follow falls on all-star weekend, like when they take the week off. So, um, I'm very excited about this. I don't, I'm sure listeners don't really care about these popsicle plans, but, I'm planning something. I'm excited for you. And also actually very funny because my, uh, so my mom and my aunt are, um, were born on the same day, but two years apart, which is like kind of wild. So the same thing, same thing with you sort of like, that's kind of time is weird. Time's a flat circle as far as I'm concerned. Well, the thing is, is my dad's birthday is also that same week. So it's just like nonstop things like nonstop sugar, nonstop parties, like, it's a busy week. Well, that'll be a very exciting week. Didn't last year? Didn't you do like a banana pudding cake or something like that? Coconut, coconut, coconut cake. I really do like coconut cake. Yeah. Oh, that does sound good. I have. A, I just got coconut cream coffee creamer. Fantastic. It's one of my favorites. It's like I can't do it all the time, but it's one of the ones I like to mix in because you just uh, you can't beat coconut cream. It's one of those things that like really grows on you as you get older. At least for me, I used to hate coconut when I was a kid. Now I like very much enjoy it. So. One fact. All right, Caitlin, I will, uh, I will, <laughs> I will let you get out of here. So we had a lengthy break in the middle due to my dog. Um, to everyone listening, thank you for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed the pod, uh, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcast. Shoot us any questions, comments on Twitter, we'd be happy to answer. Most importantly, have a rest of your day, 
and thank you for listening.